Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. A couple of weeks ago, I had a lot of fun talking about Naomi Novik's Uprooted, along with Amal Elmotar, and it was the first time I'd had a reader response show in a long time, maybe the first time, I, I can't recall, and unbeknownst to everyone, that was actually an impromptu recording. I'd actually been planning a reader response show for a while with my two guests tonight. First up is... Minika van der Salm, she's the blogger in residence at a fantastical librarian. By day, she's a university librarian in the Netherlands and a mother of two. In 2014, she was nominated for a World Fantasy Award in the non-professional category. Welcome. Good morning. That's right, good morning, because it is 5 a.m. in the Netherlands. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Second up is Jonah Sutton Morse. He's a reader and the host of a new podcast titled Cabbages and Kings, which, from what I gather, is a show all about this kind of show, readers talking about books they love. Welcome, Jonah. Good morning, or good evening in our case. In our case, that's right. It is 10 p.m. here in the middle of the United States. Uh, so Cabbages and Kings just uh, started, right? And is that an accurate description that I just gave? Yes. The goal is to have readers of science fiction and fantasy talking about reading science fiction and fantasy. So, yeah. What is what what is the connection between the cabbage and the king? Well, it's a reference to the poem uh the time has come the walrus said the notion being that we're sort of talking about everything and anything related to reading and then I got really nice art related to cabbages and kings and said okay that'll work. It's a good title. I joke with like Aiden Moher who obviously put a great deal of thought into the name of his blog which is a very uh, apt a dribble of ink and like my name was so bad right <laughs> like this one took about 10 minutes and was my wife's suggestion thinking about yelling at my bookshelf and i briefly briefly had a blog of the same title and decided that was too grumpy and she said you should do cabbages and kings instead and so i did well and i feel like minica's your 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 blog kind of titled itself right yeah you are a librarian yes i am and that I actually started the blog because I was I was doing something for work regarded to something they called the Web 2.0, which was all the rage five, six years ago. And um, and one of those things was make a blog. And I'd been playing with the idea of making a book reviewing blog for a while because I just discovered the book reviewing community uh, around that time. And, and then I got to thinking, and I, it was going to be the fantastical librarian, but then... I was also reading The Speculative Scotsman, so I thought, well, that's maybe a bit too much like, so we went with A. So, I did not invite you here to talk about your titling, although I'm fascinated by minutia like that. We actually are here tonight to do a reader response show. Like I said, we're going to be talking about two novels from 2014. Uh, two novels which have received, uh, I would say, no shortage of critical acclaim, and they've both been nominated for awards. Uh, the Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison has been nominated for the Hugo Award and the Nebula, I believe, and Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which recently won the Clark Award. Before we get started too much, I think we'll just kind of establish right up front that we're going to talk about Station Eleven first. And for those who haven't read the book, uh, you will get more out of this show if you have read the book. But we'll probably do some spoilers, but we're going to try to not get too spoilery, but but fair warning, uh, we probably won't reveal the ending, but we probably will reveal some facts from the book. So, 
Station Eleven is ostensibly a post-apocalyptic story that's told sort of in a non-linear structure uh, with what I would call sort of a vignette style where there really isn't an obvious you know, main character, and it's sort of like lots of little stories that connect to one another. Real quick, like, what are your first impressions of the book? Did you like it? Did you not like it? So my initial reaction to it was kind of bafflement. I tend to read things with plot and with a fairly straightforward, relatively easy-to-follow plot. The more I read about, I read it and the more I thought about it afterwards, the more it's kind of growing on me. I remember near the end realizing how much Station Eleven was making me think about the world we live in right now and what it would be, like all of the things that we take for granted, which I think is at least part of the the point and purpose of it. And that that kind of snuck up on me. I would imagine people who have read other post-apocalyptic fiction, that's probably a sort of common theme. But I liked I liked that aspect of it. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to read a book that doesn't doesn't have a straightforward plot. I really liked it. I, I do see what Jonah says about the not really having a plot. Um, but I read it more as um, a bit of a mystery at the heart of the, the you know, the, the, the station. What is Station Eleven and, and how does it connect all of the storylines? So I, I read it more like a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed it. So it's interesting you say uh, reading a book that doesn't have a linear plot, and I would say reading a book that doesn't really have a plot is probably more appropriate here. I'm not really sure what the through line of the plot is. One of the vignettes sort of begins with the end and then ends with the beginning, (laughs) I guess you could say, uh, with the Arthur Leander story where it starts with his death and then at the end you sort of see him moments before his death or right again at his death. It sort of ends where it starts. And so the way that the structure is kind of layered through, you see before the apocalypse and after the apocalypse. And it, to me, it just sort of seems like it's like a snapshot of this world and the people that are living in it at this moment. And the mystery part about Station Eleven was weird for me because I guess I don't even know what Station Eleven really was and how it's really relevant. Because what she does in the book that I found fascinating is that there's like three layers of subtext, right? You have like the Shakespearean line that's running through, sort of like this tragic Shakespearean motif. You have the traditional post-apocalyptic story, and then you have like this Station Eleven thing, which is like a comic inside a book, which reminded me a lot of um, The Watchmen, right? Which had the comic inside the comic. Did you guys struggle with that at all? Because I don't know how the three things connect. They didn't, they didn't connect for me. No. <laughs> because um, as embarrassing as, as it is to, to uh, confess being uh, an English, ma- English lit major, I didn't really see the Shakespearean this because I haven't read King Lear. Um, and I mean, the obvious, it's mentioned, it's King Lear. But, um, for me, the, the, the Shakespearean, this wasn't the, the, the thing. My, my favorite storyline was the post-apocalyptic one. So my, most of my energy reading went into the post-apocalyptic one. And I really liked the, um, the, 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 the pre-post, pre-apocalypse one, um, with uh, Miranda who's the author of Station Eleven, the, the comic. And um, mm-hmm. uh, so for me, the, the entire, the apocalypse is now one was the least important one. I didn't, really, I, I didn't really struggle like that. And it was only towards the end when you finally find out 
what the importance of the comic is and how it links all the uh, the line the the storylines. Well, I realized like, oh, hang on, th- those are the layers. No, I was just going to agree that for me, the the thing that carried me through was the apocalypse and post-apocalyptic piece. And I also am not very familiar with Lear or Shakespeare in general, and so didn't really pick up on that on that piece and kind of nodded about Station Eleven, but more in thinking about how this ephemera from our world survived and less in how it was its own through line. Well, and it seems to me if we're looking at that sort of ephemeral quality and sort of taking for granted the things in our life is obviously highlighted by the character of, I think, the character of Clark, who is um, the best friend of one of the main characters, uh, Arthur, and uh, has connections to kind of all the characters in the book at various times or another. Uh, One of the biggest questions, I think, throughout the book that he addresses and that others address is sort of like, should we remember, right? Is it worth holding on to these memories of, of the past that are gone, that are dead? Should we be telling our children about what it used to be like? Or should we just be moving on as though this brutal world is the new normal? Or should we be trying to reattain the, the paradise that we once knew? I think that that caught me pretty pretty hard, I think. Because I, I, th- I imagined that idea of trying to protect your children from what they've lost. But then by protecting them from what they've lost, you do, they don't know to aspire to it. Yeah, and I think also sort of, what should you remember? And there seem to be a lot, many vignettes that do not show the current 21st century in in the best possible light. And, um, but also reflect on the ways in which it's still very significant. And the, the things that we take for granted and count on and rely on. So to me, it feels like a series of novellas that have been squished together, right? And some of them exist on their own and some of them exist in relation to one another. But as I was reading through it, I felt like I could have gotten a lot of the same impact from something that had been a third of the length. Because I, I think, I think something I'm speaking to and what I'm hearing from both of you a little bit is that we, I think we all saw a lot of subtext that was going on within the narrative. But I don't know that any of it actually worked for me as a reader. Like it just, for me, I just appreciated each little vignette for what it was, but then tying them all together in some thematic thrust didn't totally grip me. I mean, would this have been a successful project if she had just written like a, a post-apocalyptic novella featuring, um, Kirsten? I think that would have been, um, an interesting story as well. But I do, I do think that the other two li- uh, storylines um, add to the general whole of the book because um, they they create such aha moments. It's like when we finally do meet the prophet and we hear him uh, speak about uh, what he's prophesizing from, um, without giving any spoilers. Um, you only get the connection because we've seen the previous uh, storylines and we've seen uh, Miranda working on uh, uh, the illustrations which are referenced. Yes, it would have worked as a post-apocalyptic novella, but I think, um, especially with the pre-apocalypse line, it's more um, um, more rich. That makes sense. 
Yeah, I I felt like, and as I say, I have not read a whole lot of post-apocalyptic, but in many ways, the post-apocalyptic framing, which was kind of the thing that I clung to the most because there was more plot there than elsewhere, seemed in some ways the least important to the theme and the parts of the book that had an impact on me. And the parts where I said, oh, that's what's going on, and that's how these things connect. Like, it had the strongest drive, but also was everything hanging around that that actually mattered and had an impact. That fascinates me a little bit, because I don't know if you picked up on it. It's in the... um the afterword or the acknowledgements or whatever in the end of the book, she makes a reference in the text to a vampire post-apocalyptic story, which was mm-hmm. actually a reference to The Passage by Justin Cronin. I don't know if either of you have read that. No, nope, yes. I haven't. I've read it. I, I ended up picking it up on Audible and listening to it a while ago. Okay, I think it's, it's, it's a very good book. Uh, but it, it's interesting that Cronin is a, is a very uh, a literary writer. Right, who decided to write the passage, which is a post-apocalyptic vampire novel, and I don't know about Emily St. John Mandel's other work. Um, it doesn't appear to be too genre-y, but I don't know that. I haven't read it, but it almost feels like to me, and based on what you just said, Jonah, that if we lifted the post-apocalyptic part kind of out of it, you know, the the Kirsten story kind of out of it, um, the rest of the novel is not really genre-y, right? It's more of a family drama kind of thing. It doesn't have a lot of genre elements. And it's interesting that she referenced Cronin in the book just because of that same contrast where it's two people that seem to be using genre to create some narrative tour de force that maybe wouldn't exist otherwise, but the actual novel they're writing doesn't have as much to do with the genre. Does that make, am I, does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's what, um, what you often hear people are complaining about when they say that uh, literary fiction has assimilated our uh, our things, like time travel and time traveler's wife, and um, uh, or you, you Cormac McCormick's *The Road* is obviously post-apocalyptic, but it's also very literary. Um, and 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 the, the, we often say, "Oh well, look, uh, time travel's gone mainstream because it's." so often used as a storytelling trope in uh, literary fiction. And I think post-apocalyptic is, is falling into that category as well. It seems like a, like a, a thing that they, is, they, they almost fall back on to create this tension that gets people interested in sort of the page turning while they can layer in this other stuff behind it. I just sort of put my hat on of like a, somebody try, a writer trying to sell a book. You're like, oh, I really want to tell this story about this famous guy from a small island who really regrets the decisions that he's made in his life, you know, leaving his wives and all these things. And I can just already see like the, the agent's eyes glazing over, like the editor's (laughs) eyes glazing over. And they're like, Oh, but, but there's this disease that, you know, that wipes out the planet and his regret is set amidst this horrible event. And then all of a sudden, Oh, that makes, you know, Oh, that sounds like fun. You know? And I think sometimes that's what this book felt like to me. It, I described it on Twitter the other day as uh, somewhere between the road and the stand, right? So the, the stand is like this super bloated, epic fantasy, post-apocalyptic thing that's, you know, all about narrative force. Uh, and then the road, which is like this soul-sucking, depressing literary novel that really has 
no redeeming happiness in it whatsoever. <laughs> and um, this like fits right in between. Like, and I, I actually felt it to be a little bit of a hopeful post-apocalyptic novel. Did you guys have that same reaction? I guess I feel like there were two things. One, just that the focus is not on the immediate aftermath of the apocalypse. It's 20 years out, mo- most of the events. And so there is, the assumption is that some level of society has been recreated. And I think that there there are other books that go post-apocalyptic and sort of immediately, okay, let's destroy society and deal with the lawlessness and chaos that's going to come immediately afterwards. And this is far enough removed from that to say, what is the new thing that we're going to build? And I also felt like there was a certain amount of, I mean, it all takes place in a fairly local area. And so there's a certain sense that here is one of the many possible futures that are being carried out. And without trying to spoil too much, it, it becomes clear at the end that there's, there are other possible futures being carried out even within a fairly small and local area. And so I feel like the assumption that something will happen after the apocalypse and in fact, probably many somethings will happen after the apocalypse seemed hopeful and optimistic. For me, that was really, I think Jonah's right. And, and for me, what really emphasized that was the desire to uplift humanity through, uh, through the arts, the music and uh, the, the, the plays they put on. Um, there has to be a certain amount of a feeling of, of safety, of, of not having to struggle for every moment. To be able to put up, put up with uh, the time to practice, to uh, play music together in the way the symphony does, um, and to put on a play, you need to practice and to have the time to practice. There has to be a certain kind of stability, and I think that was, um, uh, for me, that was hopeful that after such an event as the apocalypse in Station Eleven, humanity would then turn back to. Um, trying to create beauty. Ahead, One John. thing just, and this is slightly tangential, but just about the, the symphony and to some extent about the initial apocalypse and disease that wipes things out. It did not strike me that plausibility was high on the list for <laughs> station 11. Like there's, or, or maybe there's plausibility, but not, not really like rigid probability like okay we will buy that there's been this apocalypse and it spreads because disease and because planes and we will buy that there are people producing shakespeare and and doing the symphony because that's kind of that's what's going on with the book but but there was for me a lot of suspension of disbelief in both the notion of total total apocalypse and also the notion that the re- a response would be let's go put on Shakespearean plays, like for, for both of those, I definitely had to suspend disbelief. And once I did, I, I I was able to absorb myself in in the book, and there was plenty of other stuff. Yeah, I definitely think the the vector of the apocalypse required a bit of suspension of disbelief for me. Um, I'd be curious what a what a virologist would say about it, and and, and how quickly it spread. There are rural towns in America where they don't see outsiders for months at a time. 
and yet we're sort of those those towns just cease to exist seemingly as a result of the disease which didn't didn't make a lot of sense to me uh in, in the time frames with which it all happened and it seemed to happen very fast and the notion that uh, there's there's two characters. Uh, one is Jeevan and, and Frank, uh, these brothers who are locked up in a hotel or in their in their apartment for uh, like a couple of months. It seems like maybe a month, maybe two months. It isn't entirely clear. But uh, and, and who knows? Maybe it's longer than that. Maybe it's four or five months. But uh, the notion that that uh, the disease would completely be no longer airborne at that point also seems strange to me. That like that there wouldn't be any carriers left sort of in the world. Uh, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me unless, because they didn't really go into the fact that some people were just immune, right? Some people were immune. They mentioned that once. And then some people were just lucky and didn't come into contact with it. And those two things seem strange to me. A lot of times in other post-apocalyptic books, I think in The Stand, for example, everyone that survived is basically immune. There was like, that That was just, they're just immune. There was no sort of like luck. Everyone got it. Uh, but those who survived were just immune, which, which at least is hand-wavy, but, but it makes it easier, I think, to suspend uh, disbelief. The symphony, though, for me, made sort of sense, uh, and mostly for narrative reasons, but like the, the quote on the front carriage, uh, front car carriage, same thing in the, in the, in the, in the world, it said, a survival is not enough. And I was, as, as I was thinking about it, when, um, Minika brought it up, she said that the, the symphony sort of speaks to that notion of like survival is not enough, but then I also thought that also say, that was also true for Arthur too that like ultimately survival was not enough like him wanting to be in survival being in a different sense when you're a famous person but like he just wanted to be famous he just wanted to be an actor he just wanted to have this success and then at the end of the day that wasn't enough and he needed he needed something else he needed his his family he needed his child he did other things he was constantly searching for and so i felt like there was that through line that um that our base desires are not enough, right? That we have to reach for something else. And so I mm -hmm. thought I thought that was interesting and really spoke. And maybe if there's a theme in the book and the way it connects, I think maybe that might be it. Um, and God bless Star Trek Voyager because that's where the that quote comes from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are, there are plenty of other survival is not enough responses. I feel like kind of all over. Everybody is sort of carving out their what beyond survival. Are we Are we trying to create here or do at least in the po post-apocalyptic area and i would guess without having really thought about it probably even in the pre-apocalypse most of the people are dealing fairly directly with mm -hmm. what more beyond survival yeah miranda certainly right if she survives mm -hmm. this marriage and and having her life basically scrambled for a period of time and then having to to, to bounce back from that. No, I think that's, I think that might be right. And I think I like you, Jonah and, and uh, Minika, I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, this book is, I, I only finished it today, but every hour that it seems distant, like it, it does grow on me. I start to like it more and more, the more I think about it. And I suspect if I read it again, I'd probably like it even more the second time. That said, as somebody who's read a lot of apocalyptic fiction, a lot of apop apocalyptic fiction, it, it didn't feel new enough to me to be lauded the way it has been lauded. To me, it just feels like a, one of the better apocalypse novels I've read, but I don't feel like it really adds to the genre. It doesn't particularly add to the genre of post-apocalyptic fiction. What I think uh, uh, Emily St. Germandale does really well is 
uh, create crossover between the literary and genre uh, fiction. And I think that's what's made it so much lauded. For, because for people who don't read a lot of genre fiction and who, who aren't as well versed in post-apocalyptic fiction, um, Station Eleven is new and is fresh. And I think um, we're kind of jaded as readers because we read so much. And um, I think that's where the, 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 the lauding comes from, from the people who haven't read as much. Well, and I mean, I jumped from Kent's for Leibowitz to The Passage to this in terms of post-apocalyptic. So it was all fairly new and fresh to me, and I have no literary really... I mean, I, I haven't read that side of things at all. So it was all, in that sense, fairly new and fresh for me. The problem that I ran into was because I read so much of the big doorstop epic fantasies. I kept saying, where is my, where's my villain? What final thing are we headed towards? Where's my plot that I can hold on to? Um, when does Kirsten get the magic sword? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's going on here? When it, when, when will this, this comic that's clearly central become, become relevant and, and show its true power to, uh-huh. restore the world to what it was or something like that was it took me a long time to to break out of that reading habit but um and i and i think to that extent it was a little tough for me to get into and then the book and the world and the ways that the characters were reacting to it sort of took on enough of a life of their own that i could engage with so let's segue and say that it, if you know if this was a bridging of literary and genre fictions, then *The Goblin Emperor* by Catherine Addison is the polar opposite in every way, because to me it is a deeply seated genre novel that is in many ways uh, in conversation with other genre novels. And *The Goblin Emperor* is the story of Maya, a half goblin, half-elf, heir to the throne, a long, distant heir to the throne, and when his father and half-brothers are killed in a crash, he is suddenly thrust into being the emperor of the goblin kingdom, and is pretty much way in over his head and is forced to survive an environment in which he has not been adequately prepared for. And um, I will say I beloved this novel when it came out and have done nothing but sing its praises since... I am delighted to hear that Jonah has a different perspective, but I will make him wait to give it, and we will go to Minika first. How did you find Goblin Emperor? Oh, I fell in love with this book. I absolutely adored it. I hadn't ex- I hadn't expected to actually love it as much as I did, um, because I'd seen people raving about it. I mean, you and Renee and everybody was singing its praises, and I'm I'm always a bit. Um, like you described the, the, the hype cycle with Amal on the Uprooted episode. Um, and I was a, a bit kind of tentative because of the hype. And then, um, when we started discussing this episode I, and, and it was, um, nominated for the Hugo, I thought, well, okay, now, now I have to read it. And I read it and it was like, I couldn't put it down. I absolutely fell in love. It's so addictive. That's the best word I, could, I can describe. The, the writing for me was addictive. It felt like a warm, soothing bath. It just, it felt like coming home in, in a way. 
away from the grim, the grim, dark, more current uh, fantasy writing. So before I give my opinion, have either of you read uh, some of the early Catherine Kurtz Dearney novels? N- no, I've no. not. Okay. I read them at a formative time. And there's this 14-year-old prince who um, does not expect to be king anytime soon. And then his father dies unexpectedly and he is forced to take up the throne. There is an elaborate coronation ritual. He's pretty much immediately immersed in court politics. And some of the people in the court are reasonably supportive of him and are fundamentally decent people. And some of them have their own schemes to go on. And I basically read the Goblin Emperor as another Catherine Kurtz Dearney novel. And I enjoyed the Catherine Kurtz Dearney novels for what they were when I was 12. And I felt like, Oh good. I get to read another one and then it will inspire me to go back and I'm rereading more Dearney novels now. So you know, if people find themselves saying, I'm, I love the Goblin Emperor, I wish there were more, I would suggest that you go read Dearney Rising and uh, learn about King Kelson. But it just... And part of this may also be that I have kind of avoided most of the grimdark trend that's going on, because I do a lot of rereading. And so none of the originality that I saw lots of people talking about, and none of the, isn't this a great breath of fresh air after Grimdark? I said, this is another one of those books that I like a lot. Um, was, was much more my reaction to it. So, Jonah, you're saying that you didn't, it's not that you disliked the Goblin Emperor, but much like my reaction to Station Eleven, which was sort of like met with a, well, this is a, a good version of something I've read before, that's sort of how you felt about the Goblin Emperor. Yeah. I mean, I, so I actually, I have some issues with how goblins are dealt with and the differences between the goblins of the elves. But in general, I felt like one of the quotes that kind of jumped out at me right at the end of one of his meetings, Maya thinks to himself, there's goodwill to be found. He thought as nearly unpronounceable name returned his cup with one of her shy barely there smiles even in the nearly unpronounceable name court i i just the the kind of goodwill within the court and also scheme sense of scheming within the court and the fact that it's really more a book about politics than a book about fantasy like it's it and to that extent it's all about sort of making you fall in love with maya and without trying to spoil things too much, the great project at the end, I was grinning with delight and it was wonderful. And that was exactly, I think the effect that Catherine Addison was trying to have. But other than that, there was, yeah, it felt like, okay, this is a neat thing. I wouldn't consider it particularly fantasy and I've definitely seen it done before, but I will enjoy it for as long as I am reading it. So you make a a point there of sort of not being in touch with, quote-unquote, grimdark movement. Grimdark, of course, is sort of, I mean, everybody who's listening to this certainly knows what it is, but it's, you know, connected to the, uh, you can go back to Stephen R. Donaldson and Glenn Cook and Joe Abercrombie, and, you know, and then today I think people like Cameron Hurley and uh, Karen Miller and and others are are writing what what is functionally grimdark, which is very dark, very brutal, and often misused to say realistic, 
uh, a portrayal of fantasy worlds, what they, what they would really be like. And they include lots of terrible things occasionally, not in all cases, but sexual violence and violence against children and all the things, horrible, horrible things that happen in a world without laws and without sort of cultural and societal um, decorum, I guess, for, again, for lack of a better term. And I think having read a lot of that myself and having read it through the lens of actually appreciating what it was doing in a lot of cases because so much of the fantasy that I cut my teeth on was sort of the idyllic fantasy worlds uh, of um, Brooks and, and, and Tolkien and, and Eddings. And when I say... David I, Eddings. Right. And, so much Eddings. And when, and when, I, Redwall. And when I say mm-hmm. I, idyllic, I don't mean that like they were these happy places because they weren't you know there were lots of dark lords <laughs> they weren't all that they weren't all that great but everything was very whitewashed and sanitized and and you know easy to wrap your head around and the thing about grimdark is that it doesn't do that right it it isn't easy to wrap your head around it it, it isn't you know whitewashed in in a, in a sense of like it isn't all one thing although most people are still white welcome to fantasy but what i loved about goblin emperor i think for me is that it was a response to that in that it was sort of nice right in a novel about goodness and kindness uh, really at its heart at least i think maya was certainly about those things which i hadn't seen a protagonist about those things in, in a long time in this kind of novel and i also think it was very refreshing to me that it was it was about politics it wasn't about violence violence i mean how many acts of violence are even in the novel uh the assassination which is sort of the least violent assassination you can imagine and then I think there's an assassination assassination of Amaya at some point, which again is unsuccessful and and not really all that well thought out. <laughs> and 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 because there are fundamentally decent people, and even the ones who are not so fundamentally decent and scheming are constrained by social conventions, and those really restrict their imagination and restrict how effective and violent and forceful they're going to be. Right. Uh, which is like all the things that Grimdark isn't. So, I mean, uh, Minika, is that is that kind of? Do you think Grimdark informed your feelings on this? Because I, I don't know that I would have loved Goblin Emperor as much if I hadn't read so much Grimdark. Because to me, it felt like the way that Grimdark was in conversation with Brooks and Eddings, I feel like Catherine Addison is in conversation with Grimdark. Yes, certainly. I mean, um, like you, I cut my teeth on uh, on Eddings and Feist and. Yeah, all of the 90s fa- fantasy, um, which is not sugar sweet, but it is uh, less less uh, bleak and hopeless than uh, a lot of Grimdark tends to be. And um, the Goblin Emperor harkens back a bit to to that 90s fantasy in, in, in the sense that it is um, more hopeful and um, good and evil are not as black and white as in the 90s uh, fantasy books, but clearer than it is in the Grimdark. I felt like there was a fundamental safety to Goblin Emperor. Like, I was never really all that worried about Maya. I felt bad for him sometimes, but I was never really all that worried. Um, And certainly didn't think I was going to have anything like, and I hope I'm allowed to spoil this, but there was not going to be any Ned Stark moment in the Goblin Emperor. I think I think it's, I think we're safe to say that Ned Stark gets his head cut off at the end of Game of Thrones, and nobody's gonna you know throw us in spoiler jail for it. But yeah, no, right. The stakes in Goblin Emperor were sort of inherently lower, right? There was there was no sense that I mean, what's the worst thing that could have happened to Maya? 
right? He was deposed and he didn't get his big dream project built. I mean, that was essentially the only things that could happen to him in many ways. I mean, he could have been killed, but even then it seemed like the easier course of action in some cases would have been to just sort of like encourage him to disappear. And, and much like Station Eleven, there isn't really a plot. I mean, the plot is, there are a couple of plots that are running on, but none of them are particularly what I'd call a central plot. Again, it's just more to sort of this, um, this fascinating milieu, this fascinating world around which there's all this intrigue. And so you're kind of curious about how the intrigue works and where it's all going. I described the book to, um, to my husband and to Renee, and, and she squealed when I said this. I, f- I felt like it was sort of a slice of life epic fantasy, if you, if you know what I mean. You've got a slice of, slice of life anime is, um, well, exactly that. It's, it's, you look at somebody's life and there isn't much of a plot because you're just following along. And, um, Goblin Emperor felt a bit like that because we're following, uh, Maya along after he gets, uh, yeah, he gets enthroned and, well, we, we follow him from the moment he gets the news to, well, until the end of the book, really. Yeah, almost like the story just sort of picks up when things get interesting and then ends at just an appropriately high note. Yeah. And, and I think I buy that. And, and I wonder if people who struggle with Goblin Emperor, and there are a few uh, detractors out there, some even more firm than Jonah, and I think that's a big part of it, right? That there isn't really, particularly for what I think most people would call it's not an epic fantasy, it's, but it is a very high fantasy uh, in, in, insofar as it's, you know, kings and queens and courtships and, and politics. invented languages and overly complex words and, you know, I mean, like, there's a lot of hearkening back to, in many ways, some of the not-so-good parts of 90s fiction. Like... Mm-hmm. And it was kind of fun to, you know, travel there again for a book. But there were also a lot of reminders of, oh, yeah, I'm glad that people have been reacting to this kind of fiction by saying, hey, let's do something else. Because there was there was silliness there that didn't didn't need to be there. Were there any apostrophes in the names? I don't think so. I think they were just really long. I I, I think there were. Uh, I, I mean, I've got the copy here, so... Well, apostrophes in names is something that, that, that it can stay dead as far as I'm concerned. But, um, yeah, it, it sort of felt like one of those situations where somebody invents a language, uh, like Klingon or Elven in Tolkien, just, just to do it. Um, it doesn't really add anything to the book in my, I mean, everybody's name could have been yep. Joe and I probably would have been just as into the book because I, I, I will say I bounced on the book the first three times I tried to read it because of the names. You know, the first chapter, I just, I must have read the first three pages seven times because the names kept bouncing me over and over again. And I think as as an author, you have to know that's happening and then question why you're doing it. Um, I'd be curious if to ask Catherine Addison that. I have no idea why she did it. I mean, there's the pronunciation guide at the end in a handbook for travelers in the Elflands. There are no silent letters in Ethuveragin, and <laughs> it, there's a ZH in there, so maybe I'm supposed to say Ethuverazhin. I don't, uh, like, that's not necessary unless you're actually Tolkien or have spent that much time 
as a philologist, inventing your language and then kind of made a world for it to go in. Um, yeah, uh, that, that, but that was, I'm sorry, but that was just so 90s. It, it was, was. So retro. like this is, <laughs> so much of this is very, very, Yes, we've seen this book before, and and I have to say, part of you know, I I get that it was a refreshing breath of fresh air in reaction to Grimdark, but it's also it carries with it many of the things that you can see Grimdark reacting very justifiably against. Well, that that was exactly the criticism that uh, Jared Sharon put in his review on Porno Kitch, where I think he actually said he was disappointed that the the. The, this what is really a subtle and deeply emotional novel um, had so many alienating cliches, you know, sort of like the heavy-handed morality, a protagonist that's, you know, fu- functionally perfect. I mean, Maya is not impeached in any way. Um, his only flaw is that he that he trusts and cares too much. Right. Uh, uh, he doesn't have a flaw otherwise. His naivete is his only weakness, which. Uh, is, I think you're totally right, Jonah, a classic 90s trope. And uh, I think somewhere in the 2000s, we became completely disinterested in characters that are that way because they're not us, which then makes me wonder why I love this novel so much. It reminded you of young, innocent Justin. It's, it's, it's all charm and nostalgia, right? I think you're, yeah. And in that case, I mean, there's a book that I, I mean, among others by Joe Walton which I've totally panned because it's basically pandering to that nostalgic fan. And I, I hate novels that, that seem to pander. And, but now I'm looking at the fantasy version of that maybe. And, and I love it. And I, and I'm not going to change my opinion that I love it. I think it's just start, you have to sort of recognize that maybe that's why I love it. Cause it tickles my own little nostalgic, you know, wibble spot. That's gross. I, I will say it, it, <laughs> After reading Goblin Emperor and saying to myself, this seems like a very close imitation of the Catherine Kurtz Dierney novels, and reading, in fact, there's an essay in Strange Horizons last month, I think, about Kurtz and about Kurtz as one of the sort of forgotten forebears of modern fantasy, my next reaction was to start, like, planning a trip to a used bookstore, pick up some Kurtz books, and start rereading Dierney novels. And I love that effect. And I would be delighted if one of the results of Goblin Emperor and maybe this podcast is other people who say, let's go read Kurtz. I mean, they're, they're not going to say that they're not dated in many ways, but they're good books. And I, I am sort of biased towards rereading. And so um, I think that indulging in that nostalgia as often as possible is not a bad thing. Jonah, you said something earlier about how the goblins were treated within the novel. And, and I think one of the things that I felt the Goblin Emperor did a pretty good job of was how it addressed things like race and class and gender um, and even sexuality in, in some ways, although I don't recall if there's anybody that's not straight. There may be, I, I don't recall, but Maya was certainly portrayed in a non-traditional masculine way. And I thought there were lots of things about that that were good, um, but you kind of hinted that maybe you saw something that, that, I... what, that wasn't done that well. So, I mean, briefly, the elves are white, the goblins are black and have orange eyes. Maya is half elven and half goblin, and in the terminology of the book, he's the goblin emperor and sometimes called a hobgoblin. And it's fairly clear that, I mean, Maya 
reasonably often faces racist reactions from people, it is fairly clear that other people with goblin heritage who are not as uncommon, who are not all that uncommon, I mean, there's, there's plenty of intermarriage, people with goblin heritage face a certain amount of bias. I think that in general, when there are characters in the book being racist, there is often someone calling them on it. So I remember at one point, um, the king of the goblins is coming, and one of the kids says to Maya, you know, I'm worried you'll get eaten. And Maya says, look, that's nonsense. Like, that's the implication being that's, you know, an outdated prejudice, and, and we should avoid it. And yet, at the same time, the kingdom of the black-skinned people is portrayed as generally more violent, might makes right, it is less civilized, it has more connection to spirituality and religion, which is often associated with being primitive in our world. When the king of the goblins shows up, he's huge he's kind of monstrous and non-human six and a half feet tall if not more mountainously fat skin was just jet black his protuberant eyes lurid orange the crowd had gone completely silent as if the avar were a man-eating ogre like those said to live in the mountains above wherever there are ways where the book kind of says okay we have these two cultures that are close together skin color differentiates them but we're going to call out characters who are being racist, and there are also ways where the book kind of reinforces the notion that the goblins are in fact different and more violent and primitive than the elves, and that bugged me. Like that, I, I really didn't like the way sort of the, the canon of the book portrayed the goblins. It's also a mirror of overt and systemic uh, racism. So it might also be, you could also see it as a commentary on, well, everything that's going on in our world. And I would have been much more comfortable with that if, if in fact it was clear that the goblins and elves were basically the same. They're basically the same except for skin color, and whenever characters in the book are bigoted towards goblins they're called on it. Like, that, that I, th I think, is one thing and is a way to say, okay, I'm going to portray racism and I'm going to critique it and call it out. And I was much more uncomfortable because of the ways that the goblins are seen as different and different in ways that we would usually see as kind of associated as primitive, more violent. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, until the end of the book, Maya is the only person of any goblin heritage that we really get much contact with? Is we have dinner with the Goblin Ambassador sort of half a to two-thirds of, of the way through. That's right. Um, and again, at the dinner with the Goblin Ambassador, where Maya finally feels like, okay, I'm not surrounded by all of these elves everywhere. Their bone structure varied wildly, too. Some heavy-boned with the underslung goblin jaw, others with the fine-pointed features characteristic of the elves. This is because Maya's having dinner and every... Goblin Notable is there, and many of the Goblin Notables have intermarried and joined elven houses because they're merchants and things, and there's lots of trade. But again, like there are clear physical differences, and in general, the clear physical differences of the elves are fine features, light skin, pointed um, rather than underslung jaws. Well, okay. classic Legolas. Right. 
Well, yeah. a, a big part of that, obviously, is the fact that the you know the '80s fantasy, for lack of a better, there's it, it's obviously encapsulates things outside the '80s, but it's an easy snapshot. You know, '80s fantasy, the the elves and the dwarves and the orcs and the like, they didn't mix at all, right? They all they all lived in their own little sections of the world, and their racial and the racial and cultural differences were rarely actually ever called into question because they only interacted sort of in a on a in a border to border basis. And really only in times of great peril would they would they unite to take on a common foe. It, it, it occurs to me that perhaps what Addison is trying to do is to try to say like, okay, well, if all of these very different races that make no sense from an anthropological perspective, like don't make any sense. Uh, but if, but if these races did exist and they wouldn't just sit like this, right? Like they would intermix, they would have to confront this racism head on and, and in, and in that sense, they are physiologically distinct in a way that humanity is not. And so I, I wonder if that was sort of her own intellectual exercise that the author was undertaking and maybe failed a little bit at. I mean, that's entirely, I think, a, a, I think your criticism is, is totally justified. Certainly for me, failed. And I, I think you're right that that's, it, it would be tough for me to articulate what I think the critique is. It feels a little muddled. And that's, I think where my problem comes, like, it seems like there's a certain amount of what you were getting at. Let's admit that you would not have societies living right next to each other, that like those societies would intermingle. And yet at the same time, there was a part of the critique that's more, we are all one under the skin and there, there are only superficial differences. And it, it felt modeled enough for me that it didn't, that piece didn't work. And I wish it were the, unpronounceable word emperor and that we just didn't have goblins and elves and i feel like the entire book would have worked just as well if they had just been rival kingdoms mm-hmm. at least for me but then the title wouldn't have been nearly as wouldn't have been <laughs> that's true it would have just there would have the, been a title problem it would have just been the emperor then <laughs> it's interesting that we've looked at two books that aren't really all that similar at least i mean they aren't really similar at all but it does seem to me that both of them are books, I guess like any book, I, this is true of any book, I guess, but they, they're books that when read in context of other books that are like them sort of change the perception. You know, I, I think The Goblin Emperor, to somebody who's never read a fantasy book before, is impenetrable. Especially to yeah. um, modern readers, like modern as in, God, I feel old now. Younger, younger readers, every, everything from 25 and below. Yeah, exactly. I'd give them something else before the Goblin Emperor. I'd give them Kurtz or Eddings or... I mean, I, I wouldn't, but if I were saying, like, this is the sort of <laughs> thing that the Goblin Emperor is, I would flash back to something much older rather than, like, here the Goblin Emperor is this is mm-hmm. the platonic ideal of this particular phase that we all went through for a long time. And so, but Emily St. John Mandel... I feel pretty comfortable saying somebody says like, Hey, I want to read a post-apocalyptic novel. You got any recommendations? This would be pretty high on my list of things I would give to somebody unfamiliar with things. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a very approachable novel. Yeah. Because it's, it's got, um, it's got a hooks into things we already know, like, you know, the Shakespearean hook and the, I mean, for God's sake, August finds a TV guide and anybody, who um, 
Not that I think that uh, kids these days know what a TV guide is, because at least here in the Netherlands, they've mostly just gone the way of the dodo, mm-hmm. because hello, the internet. Mm-hmm. But the fact that that's that's a cultural cornerstone, touchstone for August, like, oh, this is my past. And it's something that uh, probably everybody, um, or at least every US reader will recognize. It's easy to lock onto, like, oh, right, this is the link to my world, and and, and this is the context in which I can place it. And for the Goblin Emperor, that's far more difficult. That's an interesting point about Station Eleven, because I was just thinking, someone introduced me recently to the concept of the Oregon Trail generation. (laughs) Those of us who are in between Millennials and Gen X and played Oregon Trail a lot in junior high, and I wonder how localized to a very particular time period Station Eleven is. For instance, I feel like the fear of a airborne illness carried over carried by planes like even that feels like something from a few years ago i mean not that that's not still an anxiety and something that could really that could still happen but i think sars right yeah like sars and MRSA, and that was yeah. something that was much more part of sort of the cultural anxiety a few years ago than than even now. And I wonder, I think there is a strength of Station Eleven that it, it kind of locates and hits some particular cultural touchstones, but I wonder in in five years even what we're going to think about that and how many of those. I mean, I'm not going to be expecting my kids certainly to, to um, click with TV Guide as cultural touchstones. <laughs> well, I think that's a lot of things about post-apocalyptic fiction in general, really. Like, uh, post-apocalyptic fiction of the, of the 90s or the 80s or the 70s is very much about nuclear war, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't really think is generally a concern of most people these days. I mean, I remember growing up during the Cold War and actually being fearful that the atomic bomb could be unleashed on the world. And I think that's much less a fear today uh, for people. And so the post-apocalyptic fiction novels that tie into that just don't resonate the same way today. And The Stand, which I read just a couple of years ago, seemed very dated, even to me. And that was an airborne illness as well. And I think maybe in that way, maybe that's part of why Station Eleven doesn't totally nail it for me, and why, say, Mira Grant's feed really did, because it was grounded in such a more modern concept with the way that the virology worked and with the way that she uses technology um, to sustain into the apocalypse. Because again, technology completely goes away in Emily St. John Mandel's book, which which is convenient for her plot, but mm-hmm. but not totally believable. I feel like uh, I feel like in that way that it, it is dated, and it, it may be much like Ernie Klein's novel, uh, Ready Player One, which I think speaks exclusively to people of our generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe Station Eleven is the same way. You know, maybe it is catnip for that slice of humanity. But I, th- I think that's also a bit of a sign of... Um, uh, I, l- I like what Jonas said about the, 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 genera- the, the, the people who are sort of stuck between Generation X and the Millennials because that is just exactly how I feel. And um, I've never... Re- I, I mean, I haven't played Oregon Trail, but that's maybe because I'm, I'm not USian. Um, but... Uh, I think that that is, you know, it's our generation that's now coming into our own as 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 far as being uh, perhaps the deciders of what gets on 
the bestseller list and you know we're the ones who are spending a lot of money right now and um, in that sense it makes sense that uh, something like Emily Sanger Mandel's book and The Goblin Emperor um, are both so successful because they speak to our generation yeah yeah they both do yeah it's kind of depressing isn't it I mean <laughs> not not it's sort of empowering but also sort of we're getting know, old we're our parents right yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, in any case, uh, we've been on about an hour now talking about these two books, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel and Catherine Addison's The Goblin Emperor. Strongly suggests that despite any negativity that either one of us has said tonight, that I think all three of us would likely encourage people to read both books. Um, I think they're both doing interesting things uh, within their own subset. And while I may have loved one more than the other, and Jonah loved the other one more than the other one, and... Um, <laughs> Munich, I think, loved them both. And uh, I appreciate you both for being on the show tonight. Uh, where, uh, Jonah, where can people find you on the interwebs? I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse or cabbagesandkings.audio is the podcast. And what about you, Munich? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter as at BalakaNL. And you can find me on the web uh, at uh, com. All right, there are the Twitter handles. I am at JDD Esquire. We encourage you to come on and tell us all the ways that we were wrong about these two books and to argue with yes. us on, on the Twitters. So uh, thank you both so much for being here tonight. Thank You're you. Welcome. Or this morning. Fun. As it may be. This has been Rocket Talk. <laughs> <laughs>